Turn to Genesis 27 and verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke this to his son. So when Esau went to the field to hunt his game, or hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and brought him wine and and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? 
He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? This is the Word of God. We thank God for His Word. Let's pray together now as we approach it. Heavenly Father, as we come to Your Word, as we hear it in our ears, as we consider it, would You mesh it into our hearts and teach us and instruct us and nourish us and build us up in the faith. Take it, plant it deeply in us. Lord, we know Your promise to us that it is powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, And so do the work of the surgeon today according to your will, through your word, in love we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The story today before us is a a tremendous story. It's it's long. It's full of details. There's so many things that are happening. It's tremendous in the sense that we're we're familiar with it. We, We know it well. And that's always a challenge, both as a preacher, when I come to a text like this, what is there to be said that hasn't already been said, but also for us as hearers, what can we learn from this? How can we grow through God's word according to this? It's tremendous also in that it sounds more like a soap opera script than a Bible story. And when we really look at the details, not the, the, the children's version of the Sunday school lesson where we imagine Jacob putting a costume on in a sense, but all of the details at play here, we see 
some some things that really strike home. It's it's a mess. It's 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 a big mess, and in a sense, it's real life. I read that this week uh, by by one person, but before that, I, I decided to, to before I decided to use that as the title. I was at home uh, early in the week, and I was talking with Leslie about all of these things. It's a big text. There's a lot of details. It's a familiar story. Trying to distinguish where I would focus and what I would draw out. And she, she interjected, well, it's real life. And I laughed uh, because I had read that in, in another uh, commentary. And so I thought, you know, that's, that's what the sermon's going to be called. And I told her that. Well, it's real life because while we may not be able to relate to blessings and birthrights and, well, many of us have may, may never have slaughtered a goat and eaten it, there are the hard issues that come out in this story, in this episode, that we can relate to. Um, our hearts are, are just like the hearts of Isaac and Rebekah, of Jacob and Esau. We want things that are not ours. We covet things that are not ours. We are tempted to lie to get our way. We're tempted to lie to cover things up. We're tempted to lie to get people to do things for us. We're tempted to live for our appetites. We fail to trust God, fail to wait on His timing. We are willing to take shortcuts without living in faith or apart from faith, faithless shortcuts to get the things that we want. You see, the idols of our hearts aren't any different from the idols of the characters in this story. So it is real life. And there are some real lessons for us to consider today. As the text opens, we see Isaac is now old. Some time has passed. He's lost his vision. But we get more information than just that. We see that he thinks that he's about to die. He doesn't realize that he's got a few decades left in him, but he, he thinks that he is approaching the end. He, uh, again, he's lost his sight, but in verse 2, he talks about being old. In verse 4, he talks about his death. And then in verse 19, and later on, when not only when Isaac comes in, but Esau as well, he has to sit up. So we get this image that he's bedridden. He is confined to his bed. And so he is experiencing many of the, the downfalls of the aging body. And he is dependent on other people. And yet he's still driven by his appetites, much like his son Esau. You struggle to distinguish, is the blessing really about the blessing and the birthright, or is it about getting a bowl of stew? Particularly when you think that he has to live for a number more years. Well, again, Isaac thinks it's time, it may be time, and so he wants to get his affairs in order. And so he is going to uh, call Esau in. That's his preparation. But Isaac seems to have forgotten a few important details. First, what was Rebecca told when the twins were still inside of her? She was given a, a promise, a prophetic promise, that the older would serve the younger. In other words, it would be Jacob who would receive the blessing through whom the birthright and the line of promise would come. And Esau, or rather Isaac, certainly would have known this. 
Secondly, Esau already traded his birthright. He did that on that fateful day when he came in so hungry he thought he was going to die. And he despised his birthright, said, what use is it, is it to me? I'm about to die. I'm hungry. And so he asked for a bowl of stew from his brother. And his shrewd brother used that opportunity to take the birthright from him. Now, we're not told in any particular text that Isaac was told that information. But it is hard when you consider the whole family dynamic that Isaac wouldn't... It's hard to imagine that Isaac wouldn't have known these things. And so much time that has passed with so much dysfunction. And when you think of life intense, as we'll see in this passage as well, Rebecca sure seems to be in the know. Uh, they heard what was going on. They were aware of what was being said in other parts of the tent. And so Isaac was all, had almost certainly heard of both of these events. Even if he hadn't, a third concern that he seems to have forgotten is that Esau, along with his two Hittite wives, had made life for Isaac and Rebekah very difficult. That was revealed at the end of chapter 26. We read it last week. We didn't have time to unpack it any. But it, st- it states in verse 35, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. You think about it from a parental standpoint. You raise your children. You put in the blood, the sweat, and the tears. You make the sacrifices. You put in the effort and the energy. You work through the the seasons of rebellion and discord and all of that with the hopes that there is going to be redemption. Uh, Redemption in the relationship and redemption in in grandchildren. Um, this This is the opposite of what Esau was. He was the antithesis of the hope that Isaac and Rebekah would have had. And yet, in spite of these things, Isaac is still determined to give Esau the blessing. And so you have to wonder, what was really driving Isaac? What was his motivation at this point? Was it really about the birthright? Was it really about the blessing? Or was it just about some food? That may be hard to imagine, except when you consider his son Esau and what he did in that moment of haste, giving it all up. It seems like Isaac and Esau weren't very different from each other. Well, as I mentioned, life intense meant that you could hear what was going on. We really get a picture of Rebecca in this passage for who she really was, that you get a sense that she didn't necessarily innocently hear this, that she was maybe more of an eavesdropper because she hears different things. It seems to be consistent, might be a bit of a busybody. Uh, She not only hears, but she springs into action. She wants to take over. She wants to control things. And that's exactly what we see in verse 5, that she jumps into action, and it's based, of course, on her own prejudice. We've already seen that Isaac was uh, affectionate for Esau because of the game. It says Isaac loved Esau because of his stew. And it says that Rebekah loved Jacob. So there was this favoritism, and we see it put into play right here in this passage. In verse 8, we're told, as soon as Esau left on his hunt, Rebekah goes to Jacob. And verse 8 says, Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. We, we notice again right away that 
Rebecca is kind of the chief character in this story. We, when we talk about this story or when we learned it as children in Sunday school, we typically think of Jacob and Esau being the primary actors, maybe Isaac as the one who gives the blessing. But Rebecca is behind the scenes, but she is a, 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 the character who is at work. And we see the, uh, the intent that she has to control what is going to be the outcome of this situation. So she gives this command to Jacob. Jacob initially seems reluctant. He doesn't want to do it, according to verse 11. But if you note, his protest isn't because he doesn't think it's right. He is rather afraid that they're going to get caught or that they can't pull it off, that that the mockery that it is will be revealed. That, that Isaac will see. He says to his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will fill me and I will seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Again, he, he doesn't think they can pull it off. You notice also that he acknowledges that the act is an act of mocking. So Jacob is not an innocent party. He is not a pawn of Rebekah's here. Although Rebekah may have been pulling some strings... Jacob is a willing participant. He goes into this willing, knowing that he is going to be lying and mocking his father. Well, Rebecca's response is that she wants to bolster Jacob's courage. She wants him to do this act for her. And so she says in verse 13, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them, the goats, to me. It's twice here that we see the forcefulness with which Rebecca calls Jacob to obey. Look in verse 8. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. And here in verse 13, only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. There is a sense of strong arming that Rebecca is doing here in her motherly role that certainly puts blame square on her. Again, Jacob is not innocent. Uh, this whole story... The four main characters, none of them are innocent. We're going to see more of that in a minute. But as we look at this particular part of the story, and as we think about Rebecca's role to take over, to take matters into her own hands, she's discovered a shortcut. She heard the promise from God, but she's failing in this moment to believe it. And so she sees the moment, and she she seeks to seize the opportunity to then use Jacob by putting this force on him, and we see it in these two verses where she commands him to obey. And of course, this brings to our mind the same effort that Sarah made when she had not yet received the fruit of the promise, a son born to her. And so she went to Abraham, and we don't see the same force at play there. It's a different dynamic in a husband-wife relationship. But she too took matters into her own hands, suggesting that Abraham take Hagar and have a son through her. And so Jacob and Abraham were willing participants in each of these acts, but we also see uh, the, the wife, Sarah, and the mother, Rebecca, uh, planning, scheming, and working out many of the details. 
In verse 14, we see them then come together to create the deception. Jacob obeys his mother. He goes and gets the goats, and she immediately begins to work. She, she, she skins them, so she's going to use the skins then to cover Jacob's smooth skin, and she cooks the meat for the stew. She knows exactly how Esau cooks. She probably taught Esau to cook. So she knows the food that Jacob or uh, Isaac loves, and she knows how to cook and prepare this food for them. But when you think of Jacob, now this is really an ingenious idea. If you've ever seen a goat, you know that the hair on it, it's not fluffy. It stays really close to the skin. And while you wouldn't think of that as resembling human hair, it's kind of close in compared to maybe other animals that were at their disposal. It was probably the best choice. And yet when you imagine Jacob like fixing goat skin on his neck and on his arms and hands, this had to be one ridiculous costume. And so th- there, there were moments through this whole process. This wasn't this spontaneous, regretful act. This was thought through, it was contemplated, and a lot of effort and time went into fixing the costume. And, and Jacob had to feel some shame and some embarrassment in the process as well, and yet he went through with it. He takes the food. He goes into his father in an effort to trick him. And right away, we see his reluctance as he approaches his father in his greeting. He says, my father. This is the equivalent of, well, the Hebrew, it's one word. It's av. So he walks in the room and says, av. It's like us going in the room and saying, dad. He didn't speak much. Isaac couldn't really hear him say much. When you look at the way Esau enters the room later when he approaches his dad, it was a complete sentence that he uh, greeted his father with. And so right away we see Jacob is reluctant to speak. He knows he, uh, he's tricking his dad. Jacob um, speaks to him in verse 19. When he's questioned, Isaac seems immediately suspicious. Who is this? Jacob responds in verse 19, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. You can start adding the tick marks of the number of lies here. Here's the first two. I'm Esau. This is not Esau. He says, I have done as you told me. No, no, he hadn't because Isaac had not told Jacob to do anything and Jacob hadn't done anything his mother had. And so immediately he lies to his father. Well, Isaac's suspicion rises and it rises throughout this conversation. You get the sense that he is growing more and more alert. He says, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? And Jacob immediately responds with another lie. He says, because the Lord your God granted me success in verse 20. Not only does Jacob here bring the name of God into his lie, but look at how he phrases the name of God. He says to Isaac, it's your God. This is how Jacob spoke of the Lord. He continued to speak of the Lord this way, and we'll see this in chapter 31 and chapter 32. It's not until after his dream, after his return from Haran, and after his dream where he confronts God in that dream. God confronts him, really. And I think that's a strong argument there where his language changes from your God to becoming my God when he speaks of Yahweh. And I think that's a strong argument that that is where Jacob was converted. We see Isaac then begin as his alertness continues to grow. He uses then all of his senses to try and determine what is true and what is right. Verse 21, please come near me that I may feel you. He wants to touch Verse 22, the voice is Jacob's, but the hands are the hands of Esau. 
Again, he's listening, using his ears. Verse 25, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game. He wants to taste to see if this is the stew that Esau makes. Evidently, Esau had kind of his own uh, own recipe, had his own way of cooking. And you would guess that Isaac could uh, could tell if, 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 Isaac, if Jacob had cooked it or Esau had. And then finally, in verse 27, he calls him to come near to him. He wants to smell the garments. Of course, Rebecca had thought through all of these details. And she had made sure that, that not only did they put the skins on him that he would feel different, not only did she cook the stew just right, but they even put the clothes of Esau, his best clothes on him, so that when Isaac smelled him, he would smell his son Esau and not his son Jacob. So Isaac attempts to use all of his senses, and his senses fail him. We, we could stop here and take of a bit of rabbit trail. We, we won't. But you think about this for a moment. We think of being uh, spiritually blind or spiritually deaf. The, the idea of those things being we're able to see, but we're missing things spiritually. We're able to hear, uh, but we're, we're not really understanding. Jesus spoke this way about people who were seeing and not perceiving, hearing and not understanding. And we have had these experiences in our life. The, the truth is our senses can deceive us. You walk into a room and you think, uh, you know, who's... Uh, well, if you've, husbands, if you've ever made this mistake with your wife, this, is, of course, has never happened to me, but I've heard stories where you come in and you make one kind of accu- accusative say, statement uh, and, and it's not at all what's happening in the kitchen. Something's being prepared and you, you, you think somebody has, you know, lit a, a, a piece of paper on fire or something. Well, our senses can deceive us. Our senses are great. They're typically reliable. We're grateful to have them but they don't necessarily always tell us the truth. And this is an example uh, in Isaac's life where he relied on his senses and Jacob and Rebekah took advantage of the father who had lost one of his senses to then deceive him and trick him. And then Isaac gives Jacob the blessing. Even though these are sinful acts, God's will is accomplished here. This was God's will that Jacob would get the blessing. It just, this wasn't, uh, uh, this wasn't, uh, from a human speaking, humanly speaking uh, position, this is not uh, the way God would have orchestrated it. Uh, you know, this is one of the, the remarkable things about God's sovereignty is that he allows us to make choices, to make decisions, uh, to live our lives all under his sovereignty. Notice that his will is never uh, changed. His will is never stopped. His will, we say his will is never thwarted. Uh, but there, and there, there will be accountability for these actions, these sinful actions. But this, these acts were not the way that God would have orchestrated things. Why? Well, they were, they were sinful. They were, they were wrong. They, they, uh, they were sinning against one another, and ultimately they were sinning against God. They were acting apart from faith. And so the blessing then is pronounced over Jacob. Look at it. The dew of heaven, the fatness of earth, the plenty of grain and wine. Each of these elements that Isaac conjures up, these images that Isaac conjures up are images of the promised land, that the land that had been promised to Abraham and to his descendants would indeed come to the descendants of Jacob. And so here is the, the, the picture of the promised land in these statements. And the second part 
It says, let the people serve you. Nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. These are the elements that point both to the promise that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, but also to the promise that was given to Rebekah that uh, Jacob would rule over Esau. And in the, the language of it, we see very similarly the promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you, I will curse. So the blessing is now transferred to Jacob. So we saw it previously, blessing given to Abraham, it's transferred to Isaac. Now we see the blessing from Isaac transferred to Jacob. Even though Jacob and Rebekah had schemed, they had lied, they had tricked, they had taken matters into their own hands, God's will still prevails. It's something that we have seen already in Genesis. We'll see it again, not only in Genesis, but it's there in all of biblical history. And it is both a warning not to take matters into our own hands, not to take the shortcut, not to believe the lies of Satan, but it is also a comfort that even our sins cannot frustrate God's plans, that he still remains sovereign. And so we can ask ourselves, are there ways in which We have been willing or are willing to compromise to get things done, uh, whether it's through lying or through deception or through some other means. You know, sometimes they're not bad things we're trying to get done, and that's why we end up justifying sinning to get them. Uh, You think of uh, the desire for Rebecca to, to see Jacob receive the blessing. She had already been promised it. She should have waited and let God work this out on his own timetable through his own means. He would have received tremendous glory uh, from doing that. He didn't need Rebecca's help any more than he needed Sarah's help to bring Hagar to her husband Abraham to have a son through Hagar. In that sense, God doesn't need us. And so sometimes when we get so fixated on something, even a good thing, that we are willing to compromise through sin to achieve that thing. We need to to be on guard against that temptation. That's a trap. It's a trap that we can fall into. Uh, We need to understand that not only can we fall into it, even though it won't thwart the plans of God, even though it won't defeat His purposes, sin still has consequences. And we see that in this passage, that these relationships are forever changed. Each of the characters in this story will reap consequences for some time, really, for many, the rest of their lives. Their lives are forever changed because of what happened right here in chapter 27. I've mentioned just a few. These aren't the only things, but Rebecca, for example, she's going to send Isaac away, um, Jacob away to protect him because Esau wants to murder him at the end of the story. She doesn't realize, she says for a while, she thinks it's a short while, she doesn't realize she'll never see him again. He's going to be gone for 20 years and she's going to die during this time frame. Jacob, who was so seemed so willing to deceive his father and trick his father and lie to him repeatedly that he was Esau, Jacob is, is going to get tricked in a very similar way by Laban. He's going to experience the same kind of victimization that his dad experienced at his hand when he goes to Laban to seek Rachel's hand in marriage and is tricked into marrying Leah first. Esau, he would not only know rejection and what we might call the anti-blessing, what we'll see here in a minute, but he would fall into this murderous hatred 
for his brother. And if his mother had not sent Jacob away, very likely would have done as Cain had done toward Abel. And Isaac, you see really his role in his family's life. His influence is shot. His role is lost at this point. We, we see very little about him from this point on. The failure, the ultimate failure is that here his family is, is now left in shambles. It's a wreck. It's a mess. Yes, God is still faithful, but there are consequences. And so when you and I do these same things, whether it's lying to get our way or to get something that we want, or whether it's looking down on someone, speaking ill about someone, mistreating someone, speaking harshly to someone, using someone for our own gain, there will be consequences. Relationships will be affected. You think about it, if we lie to get our way, trust is broken. And sometimes that trust is not, it's not mended overnight. Because that person that you've lied to uh, can for some time question the things that you're saying to them, wondering, is this another lie? That trust is broken. It takes time. It can sometimes take years to rebuild the trust. If we blow up in anger and we fracture a relationship through harsh words or even using our hands, that isn't necessarily remedied by a word of apology, by a, a, a day or two. Again, sometimes it takes time. And so through this experience, we need to understand there are consequences. We ought to be warned by this, that God is holy. And yet at the same time, we can be comforted because He's sovereign and He's good. And even our sins cannot stop His plans. Well, in verse 30, we begin to see Esau emerge back into the story. It's interesting. He returns on the heels of Jacob's receiving the blessing from Isaac. And that pun is intended. It says as soon in verse 30, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father Esau brought Esau, his brother came in from his hunting. You see it coming. It's this impending storm, right? It's on the horizon. The black clouds are rising. You know what's about to happen. Isaac and Esau are both about to realize the, the, the earth-shattering news of what has just happened. It's going to rock their world. And that's exactly what happens. I mean, it shakes them to the core. Look at the language Moses uses in describing this. In verse 33, Isaac trembled very violently. In verse 34, Esau cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. You sense by the description of both of these, that these, these, these men, grown men, who had experienced incredible grief and shock and disappointment and shame to this level that they are demonstrating emotion in a, in a, in a, well, in a demonstrative way. They're, they're, they're displaying their emotion uh, through shaking, through crying, through bitter tears. And Isaac realizes what happened. In verse 35, he says to Esau, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. And Esau responds, playing on the pun that I just mentioned, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away the blessing. Esau is recalling the meaning of Jacob's name, that he was the heel grabber. And he had, in essence, tripped up his brother, grabbed his heel once again in trickery, and taken from Esau 
what in Esau's mind rightfully belonged to him. So then Esau asks for a blessing. It's a, it's a request of desperation. Is there anything left for him? Anything? But there's nothing. Esau has lost everything. The blessing that Isaac does give to Esau as we read it is no blessing at all. In fact, it sounds more like a curse. Look in verse 39. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. So the first part uh, of this pronouncement sounds uses some of the same language as the blessing that was given Jacob. But this Hebrew word is, it modifies and changes the meaning of it. Rather than the blessing being toward him, it's away from. So he will, instead of receiving the goodness of the promised land, he will live in a place that is barren. Instead of receiving the dew from heaven, the, the necessary dew that would water crops, in a land that doesn't get a lot of rain, it's, they're highly dependent on that, he would be, in a, in a, again, in a barren land. Instead of receiving good things, Esau would be kept away from the benefits. Instead of plenty, he would know hunger. Instead of refreshment, he would know thirst. So it was an anti-blessing. And the second part, it's again, similar language, except that it's the opposite. Instead of ruling over Jacob, he would be under his... Instead of peace, he would know violence. He would live by the sword and he would not know freedom. But there would come a day when he would strive to break the binds that would tie him. And Edom was eventually, uh, they, they became a, th- a thorn in the side of the people of God and, and the people of Israel. And if you read the prophet Obadiah, you can see some of the unfolding story where God's judgment comes. You can understand why Esau demonstrates the, the emotion that he does, this bitter weeping that he displays. And why he, he ends up coming to the point that he wants to kill his brother. He's lost everything. Now he's to blame. I mean, he is the one who was so flippant. He despised his birthright. He didn't care about it. Gave it up for a bowl of stew. But yet he felt like it was still his right. And whether God promised it to Jacob or not, and God certainly did, the way Jacob took it, the way that Jacob and Rebekah conspired was utterly maddening to him. He's mad at Jacob for the treachery. He's mad at his parents for their multiple failures. He's mad at himself for despising the birthright, for allowing himself to be duped. So you see anger, shame, and grief. These are three of the most powerful emotions, uh, some of the most deep emotions that we feel, and they are some of the most potentially destructive Emotions, Not always. I mean, we, there is a righteous anger. There are times when we grieve. But these, these emotions can easily become roots in our heart that are dangerous to us and lead us to a place where we feel ruined or tempt us to do things like Esau was tempted in wanting to keep or to kill his brother. Well, as we've already seen in this family, and, and what is true in most families Within families, secrets are hardly kept, even if they're not talked about, even if no one else outside the family knows about it, even if no one in the family talks about it. 
people seemed to know. And Rebecca soon learned about Esau's plan to murder Jacob. And again, the consummate planner, she goes into action to send Jacob away. Verse 44 indicates that she thinks it's just for a little while, but as we've already mentioned, he's going to be gone now for two decades before he returns, and Rebecca would die before he returns. But even more so, her relationship with Esau, which was already not good. You know, Jacob was her her favorite. Esau was was his dad's favorite. So the relationship was already uh, not healthy. But whatever was there that might have been good is completely lost at this point. And she just puts the nail in the coffin of her relationship with Esau. And so her reasoning, which is expressed in verse 45... That, that is her fear of, of losing. She says, that why should I be bereft of you both in one day if Esau were to kill you? She's saying this to Jacob. In one sense, this comes true. She does lose both of her boys. She loses Esau relationally. Uh, he becomes cut off from her. And Jacob, she loses geographically. He becomes cut off from her. And then more deception right at the end in an effort to keep Isaac out of the loop and to keep him, in a sense, distracted. She comes up with this excuse. It's partially true. She is fearful that Jacob would marry a Hittite. Esau had already made their lives bitter by marrying these two Hittite women. And, and of course, God had told Abraham not to allow Isaac to marry one of the Canaanites. And that, prompt, that, that command would have extended down And so this wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but it wasn't the truth. That wasn't truly why Rebecca sent Jacob away. But that's what she tells Esau and why she's sending him to Haran. Well, there's a ton more detail. As you can tell, we've moved very quickly, or maybe it didn't feel that way. I hope it didn't feel too long. But there's so much else in here that we could have looked at, talked about, details that we left out. We just don't have time to cover it all. But let me summarize this chapter as saying, this is one big mess. This is just a big mess. And yet, as we have seen and said already, it's real life. I don't mean that all of our lives look like a soap opera or that we've all faced these same issues. Like I said, most of us don't know or think in terms of birthrights and blessings. But we do know that there are all things in our lives that few other people know that are deep struggles for us. Maybe it's our marriage is on life support. We've kept it a secret. No one else knows it, but we wonder if our marriage is going to survive. Or maybe uh, a child has uh, turned away from Christ. Not something we advertise, but something that weighs on us deeply, that keeps us up at night, that causes our hearts to break again and again. We feel like failures as parents, or a child does something else that makes us feel like we've failed as a parent. Maybe our finances are just in shambles. We're, We're in debt to the brink. We've kept it a secret. No one else knows about it. There's no hope on the horizon. Uh, We're afraid to talk about it. We're ashamed. Maybe we were passed over for a job or for a promotion and we never recovered. It became this root of bitterness and uh, it just seems to hang on to us everywhere we go. Maybe we were stabbed in the back by a friend and the bitterness is like a shackle around our ankle and we can't shake it. We can't get rid of it. We think about it literally every day and we have conversations in our head about what we'd say to this person or do to this person for what they did to us. Or we fear 
becoming someone that we've despised. Maybe it's a real person or maybe it's a caricature of a person, but every day we see more and more evidence that we're becoming that person. Or we fear losing everything we love in this life to the point that if we did actually lose it, we wouldn't even want to go on living anymore. You see, there's some of each of those scenarios at the heart level. There's some of each of those scenarios in our story today. And I would imagine that there's something in what I just mentioned in that list that would strike a chord in each of our own hearts. Again, we may not relate to birthrights and blessings, but we can relate to the underlying heart issues that we see unfolding in this story. They're not spelled out in a specific way, but they're all there. Uh, And although this wasn't necessarily the intention of Paul when he wrote Colossians 3, that chapter we read this morning, it is interesting when we look at the list that he mentions there, how many of these things we see in chapter 27 of Genesis. And these are things that we see in our own lives. Impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, or anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Or the big one, lying. We saw a lot of that today, didn't we? This is what we saw in in Colossians 3, and it is such an exhaustive list that I would again say one, if not more, of those things things in that list strikes a chord in each of our hearts, and we realize this is real life. And so we need real answers to be able to come up against these things. I mean, how do we break the shackles of things that hold on to us, those things that consume our thoughts that happened maybe years ago? Or how do we deal with someone who, can, who we love but continually breaks our heart over and over again? How do we go on loving them? How do we not become despondent? How do we deal with life when it seems like everything we do fails? We, we just, we don't, we, we can't ever achieve success. Every time we think and we work hard, something falls apart. It's like we live out Murphy's Law. How do we have hope in a situation like that? Well, the hope and the answer, of course, is the gospel of Jesus. And it's there in Colossians 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The idea that we are trusting Christ for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins, is sometimes, unfortunately, where our faith stops. We don't intend it to happen this way. We just, maybe we haven't grown like we need to grow. And so we think that when, when the pastor says the gospel is the answer, what that means is that, oh, yeah, Jesus has forgiven my sins. Well, and that is the answer. But it's because He has forgiven our sins, died for our sins, paid the price for our sins, that we can have hope in this life when all of these other things happen. When the shackles are around our ankles and it grabs tightly and brings us down, that we're dealing with the same issue over and over and over every day from something that's happened years ago, something that's in our past. Or when when we deal with the, the pain of a loved one, who continually breaks our heart, or or we're up against failure, we can't seem to succeed, or whatever the scenario is. It is because of, of who Christ is and what He has done for us and the hope of ours that is in Him that it transcends all that stuff. You see, our identity is not found in those things. 
The child that breaks our heart, our identity is not found in our parenting performance. We all fail as parents. But thanks be to God, Christ has redeemed us in spite of that. And He is sovereign over all these matters, even our children and how they turn out, or over other matters of of failure, whether we think we've uh, failed in life or can't succeed in life or can't get ahead in life. He's still sovereign over those things. He's sovereign over the things that happened years ago to us that weigh us down and the bitterness that grips us. And He rules and reigns over all these things. And He intends to use all these things to put His glory on display and that He redeems all of these things. All of our messes, this real life stuff, this mess that everything is, is going to be redeemed and fixed and made right and made beautiful. And from the ashes, from the ashes... Our new life in heaven will cause all of these things to pale in comparison. When we see, th- see clearly what now we only see in part through a glass dimly, it will call, the glory that we will experience will put all of this into a faded memory if we remember it even at all. And so hold on to Christ. The one who never changes. Look back and see how God has been faithful. How He preserves and protects in the messes of life. Treasure the solid rock that Jesus is and hope in Him above all the circumstances of the messes of this life. Let His peace rule your heart instead of your fears. Instead of your plans to fix things. How much time do we sit wallowing in fear? Or how much time do we sit planning and thinking through strategies to overcome something or a conversation that we would have with somebody to to fix a problem or to get revenge or whatever? Instead of allowing those things to consume our time and our imagination, let the, the, the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Use those times to pray instead of plan and contrive and, and, and scheme and do like Rebecca and Jacob did. Remember these stories that we have seen in Genesis and remember that the shortcuts never led to fruitfulness. They always denied. There were always consequences that stuck with uh, those who would not wait in faith. And as you hold on to Christ and let His peace rule in your heart, be thankful. Be thankful. I wrote to you this week in the devotional that thankfulness is the antidote to fear. Thankfulness is the antidote to a lot of things I'm learning. It's the antidote to covetousness. We see this, or covetousness, uh, which is idolatry, Paul explains. We have so much to be thankful for in our lives, even in the mess. Even when life, real life gets messy, it does. But even when things are messy, there are so many things that we can be thankful for. And so as we give God thanks, He gives us an increasing increasing measure of thankfulness. And we grow into that. And then as we are thankful, we let His Word dwell in us richly. This means we read it, we know it, we meditate on it. We know that it's powerful. It's been promised that it will not return void. It is nourishment for our hearts. And so in and through God's Word, the Bible, the very God of this whole universe speaks to us. So let His words dwell in you richly. Is life messy? Yeah, you bet it is. I mean, if it's not right now for you, thank God that it's not right now, but it's coming. Messes come. None of us are immune to this. None of us get to get to go through life without messes. And so when this comes, whether they're things that are happening to us 
Are there things that we have been guilty of participating in or what is most often the case, a mix of those two things? When the messes come, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Give thanks to Him. Let His Word occupy your mind and fill your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider the mess, the messes that we see here in the lives of Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau, and of course as we think of our own lives, Lord, it's easy to become, oh, just jaded or numb or despondent and just want to give up. Lord, would you capture our hearts with the hope that is ours in Christ? And would you cause that hope to rule and reign in our hearts that we would not lose courage, but that we would be willing to walk through those things that we face. And there may be those repeated things that we've been already facing for days on end, months on end, maybe even years on end. And we're tired of them, Lord. But may you give us the courage to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts so that we may, even in these times, give thanks to you. And would you cause your word to nourish us in such a way that it would guard our thoughts that it would guard our emotions, that it would instruct us in the way that we're to live, that our hope would never be found in our circumstances, that we would never be lured into thinking that because life is abundant in this moment that we've been uh, uh, righteous before you, like we've earned it. May we never be tempted to think that way. Or may we never be tempted to think that we need to take matters into our own hands and become the control freak like Rebecca. And think that we need to uh, devise plans to accomplish what you've already revealed as your will. Keep us from doing these things. Keep us from lying like Jacob. Keep us from being uh, kind of isolated and indifferent and ruled by our appetites and and just a failure like Isaac was. Keep us from uh, being filled with murderous hatred like Esau was or just even the despising the birthright, not caring. Lord, guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus and fill us with the truth of your word that it would encourage us, nourish us, and direct our steps, that our lives would be then a testimony and others would be drawn to you. You are our only hope. Increase our faith today, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.